0: We're going to continue in our series in the book of Romans. And tonight, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. So, again, tonight, Romans chapter 3, we're looking at verses 9 through 20. Give you some time to get there. Get it on our slide. Again, that's Romans 3, starting at verse 9, going through verse 20. I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into the message. Romans 3, starting at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have all uh, already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we simply ask that you meet with us tonight, that through your word, uh, through your spirit, illuminating our minds and hearts to the truth of what we need to hear, Not only hear, but heed and obey God. Meet with us and make us not just hearers, but doers of your word. Doers of the the spirit-inspired obedience that you want to bring about in every person's life tonight, God. Help us to, with joy, with thanksgiving, with fear and trembling even, to stare into your word, to see what you have to say to us, to see how you want us to obey and to live it out. God, be with every person uh, listening here in person, every person who will listen to this, every person listening online right now. Help us to meet with you, to see you, to obey you, and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Romans 3. There is a saying that to, uh, to be polite and to have polite conversation, you should never discuss two things, religion and politics. And we have certainly discussed a lot of religion in the first three chapters of Romans, so uh, I figured I would break the second half of the rule of politeness and uh, start off tonight by talking a little bit of politics. Uh, There's a saying in politics, you can't legislate morality. Basically, the idea is, you know, if you pass laws forbidding something, say stealing, passing those laws won't ultimately eliminate stealing. It may discourage it, But ultimately, you won't eliminate stealing by saying it's illegal to steal. You can't legislate morality. And I think we could all observe that, right? Stealing is illegal. I'm sure we all know people and perhaps even in our life at some point have stolen something. So the saying, you can't legislate morality, uh, I agree with to some degree. But in another sense, I would say that I disagree. I think a more accurate statement would be, you can only legislate morality because every law and legislation that's written has some moral assumption behind it. So for example, stealing is illegal is a moral assumption. It has some level of uh, authoritative source that said it's wrong for someone who owns something to have it taken from them by someone who doesn't. So I think the question we should ask is anytime we see or look at a piece of legislation should be whose morality are we ultimately legislating? And I think a deeper question we should ask, and as you think about politics and legislation and all that, is, is there any other hope for the human condition beyond just legislation and morality? We all know that stealing is wrong. We probably all know people that steal, and we know stealing's illegal. So is the best we can hope for, for the human condition to say stealing is wrong, killing is wrong, and just hope that people eventually get it, and they follow up and live up to their morality? I think there is a deeper hope for humanity, and I think our passage has it tonight. We live in a society today that, just like the original readers of the passage, has many ideas and many pieces of legislation that say what's moral and what's not moral. The problem is is that from the time of the passage to the time that we live in today, we're still dealing with the same problems. We don't live up to the standards of our own morality. And that's because we're still dealing with what the Bible calls and what this passage calls sin. We're still under sin, and morality will not save us. Now, our passage tonight speaks mainly to two groups of people, uh, people called Jews and Gentiles. Jews, if you read the passage, you could read as maybe the more formally religious people. And Gentiles are seen as the the non-religious or the non, we could at least say, um, God-ordained religious people. And Paul begins this passage by asking the question, are Jews, with their sense of religion and morality, ultimately better off? Now this time he says no, and if you heard uh, Pete preach last week, or if you're familiar with the earlier part of Romans 3, or, uh, yeah, Romans 3 is an interesting contrast because at the beginning, it seems like Paul is making the, uh, making the statement that the Jews are, are somewhat having an advantage, um, having the very words of God. They're at some level of advantage. And Romans 9, I believe, actually has a fuller list of the advantages Paul says that come with being Jewish. So, for example, Paul says that the Jews are at an advantage because they have the very words of God. They have the very oracles or commandments of God. So if you can only legislate morality, whose morality is better to legislate than that from God himself? If you look in the Old Testament, this would be the, the oracles or the words from God that the Jews had. You'll read the Ten Commandments. If you read through the first five books of the Old Testament, there are roughly 600 pieces of legislation, 600 laws, 600 moral ideas that come directly from God. So if you're some person who doesn't speak Hebrew, you're not physically or geographically, uh, geographically connected to God's covenant people, there's a tougher chance and a harder chance that you'll have direct access or the ability to know or to have uh, insight into what God's moral ideas are. Now, we talked about this, I believe it was a few sermons ago, that you still have a conscience. So even if you're not directly exposed to the Ten Commandments or you're not directly exposed to the old covenant law, you're still hold, held accountable to God. That was a sermon we talked about a few weeks ago. But the Jews, we could say perhaps to their advantage, had these unquestionable, And clear expectations from God so it's hard to hear that and think that the Jews aren't at some advantage but I believe the reason the the reason that Paul lands ultimately where he does is what's at the end of verse 9 he says that both Jews and Greeks are under sin so it's not that he's saying there's no advantage to being Jewish I think what he's saying is ultimately Jews and Greeks are under sin. Or to paraphrase, those who have the law and those who don't have the law, those who have some access to God's morality and those who don't have access to that morality are all under sin. So if talking religion and talking politics is offensive, telling people they're sinners is the the chief of offenses you could bring to someone, especially telling religious people that they're sinners, those who had direct revelation from God about what's right and what's wrong. So I think what's happening here is a bit of a leveling of the playing field. It's not that the Jews thought that they were never sinful, that they never committed any sins, but they might have been an advantage or they might have thought, well, we're not quite as bad as those Gentiles. We have a bit of a head start. We have some moral wrongs that we've done, but we can compensate for those in some way, shape, or form. But the, the point here of this passage is that the religious... The irreligious, the Jews and the Gentiles, are both under sin. And even if you had direct revelation from God about what's right and wrong, you've still missed the mark. Now, it would be one thing for Paul to kind of make this point and then move on and start talking about some of the things that we know come later in Romans. Justification, sanctification, imputed righteousness. It would be one thing to kind of say that and say, okay, I'm going to talk about the good stuff now but he draws it out and he really belabors the point. And he does so in a way that I think is poetic and very purposeful, a way that would have been familiar to a lot of the original readers. So if you pick up in verse 11, he's drawing this point out that both Jews and Greeks are under sin and in a way that would be very familiar to a lot of the readers who were Jewish or had a religious background. Verse 11 and 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now these verses are paraphrasing or quoting parts of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Genesis 18, 16 to 32, Ecclesiastes 7, 20, Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm uh, 53, 1 to 3, multiple parts in the Old Testament. These are kind of a cobbling together of the sacred text. So if you're hearing this and you're one of the Jews, You've probably had these passages read to you or you've read them yourself if you were uh, literate. So imagine the impact of the words, of these words, coming into those who were religious, growing up, hearing these texts, hearing these Old Covenant quotations. And you're thinking he's quoting these, and oftentimes the the context you may have heard these quoted is these uh, descriptions are about the wicked or these descriptions are about those who don't know God or who don't have access to the one true God or access to God's morality. And if you're familiar with the Old Covenant, you're familiar probably with the myriad stories in which God intervenes with his people in direct and miraculous ways. Moses parts the Red Sea, David's the great king, Solomon coming after him in the kingly lineage, the three Hebrew boys in the lion's den. There are all these miraculous stories in the Old Covenant. And if you read the descriptions of the temple and how God's presence miraculously dwelled there, and it was this big ornate thing that people had where they could come and worship God not to mention all the laws and the festivals that were there in the Old Covenant. There's a real history that these people have with God. There's a real presence in which God really dwelt with them, and there's a real way in which God showed himself to these people. And what Paul says to them, after having this history, after having this rich religion, after having these direct revelatory words from God about right and wrong that they tried to follow, he says, ultimately, you don't understand You don't seek God, you've gone your own way. There are probably some people who heard that and were pretty offended. After all the history that we've had as a people, we're God's covenant people. We've had direct revelation from him. We have this rich history of kings and prophets who are in our people. But that's just like today. If you tell anyone of any religion they're wrong, you run the risk of offending them. Religion can make people moral. We probably all know devout Muslims who are like good, well-put-together people. Uh, I used to work with a lot of uh, Mormons. They're nice people. They show up on time, they work hard, they're very pleasant to be around. You may know devout Bo- uh, Buddhists, Hindus, people of other religions, the nation of Islam, there are people who are moral, who are religious. But what's Paul's doing, and what the gospel ultimately does, is it looks all of them in the face, and it starts by saying, you're wrong. You don't seek God, you've gone astray, you don't understand. It's an offensive claim to make. And the offense then doesn't stop there. It goes on with this belabored point that Paul is making. He continues with this anatomy of what it means to be under the power of sin. He's not just saying you're a sinner and you've done some wrong things. He's saying you are under, you are imprisoned under the power of sin. And he continues with a diagnosis starting in verse 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. These are all descriptions, again, you can find in the Old Testament in the Psalms. Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7. So again, if you're reading this and you're familiar with these passages, you may have heard them talked about in the context of, well, that's for the wicked or that's for the enemies of God. But now we have uh, what, what's, what's basically being used as a pride killer. Any means by which anyone who read those passages and thought... I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. I'm, I'm not one of those people. Paul's going at them. He's illustrating all of us, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And I think it's fitting that the first kind of metaphor he draws out is the mouth. Jesus says that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says something similar. If you can't control your tongue, you've deceived yourself and your religion is worthless. It's very interesting that the mouth reveals a lot about us. There's that old saying, sticks and stones can't break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words may not hurt people, but they will condemn us. They do reveal something deep about us. And maybe it's time for us to consider the way we use our words. What does it say about the ultimate condition of our heart? Are you a grumbler, a complainer, an accuser, a critic, a gossip? Even if you don't mean it, even if you're just venting, even if it's just in good fun, even if you're just saying things to get things off your chest, our words tell us something about the condition of our heart. And Jesus says in Matthew 12 that one day we'll give an account for all the words we said, the idle words, the words we thought no one was listening to, the words we said when we were just venting. Matthew 12, 12, 36. I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I'll offer this as a warning that if your words fall into the categories of what I just described, grumbling, complaining, accusing, gossiping, maybe this is an opportunity to look at the state of your heart, examine yourself, Are you under the power of sin? Does the way you use your words reveal something about your ultimate condition? Again, the case is being made here that both Jews and Greeks, the religious and the non-religious, are under the power of sin. It starts with words. That's the first diagnosis. But then it moves on and it shows itself in actions as well. Verse 15 and 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. So from words to action, again, uh, directly quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 36.1, Isaiah 59.7. Now this is a really blatant one because Psalm 36.1, if you read it, says, an oracle within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So it's very easy to read that Psalm 36 and say, oh, this is about the wicked. This is about people who don't know God or people who aren't directly connected to covenant Israel, people who aren't religious or know of his moral commands. There's no fear of God in their eyes, their violence, their ruthless behavior. But again, the case is being made here that this applies to everyone. Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, in our context, being swift to shed blood... We could certainly think of many historic examples of violence, and of war, and of oppression, and of times that we've shed blood or or harmed another person made in God's image. The Holocaust, shadow slavery, or lesser-known things. It's it's very interesting. Throughout history, there are kind of the traditional ones we hear growing up in school, and then there are ones that just don't seem to make it into uh, curriculums or popular discourse. Um, I I remember hearing a few years ago about what's called the Khmer Rouge. This was in Cambodia. There was a Marxist leader named Pol Pot. Between 1975 and 1979, two million people died as a part of his oppressive regime. There was a movie that was released in the 80s called The Killing Field to try to bring attention to one of the uh, lesser-known global genocides or historic genocides. And even today, with the accusation of being swift to shed blood, we haven't evolved that much. Wars are still being fought. People are still dying. Lives are being taken unjustly. And unfortunately, as Paul said in chapter one, we um, as people in our sinful nature are inventors of evil. And the US as a country is not exempt. It's not just something those uncivilized, those wicked nations do. There are many ways that we fail to value life. One example, here in the US, uh, if you look at the most recent data, in 2018, there were 619,000 abortions. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn anyone or to say that uh, this is the only way that we are swift to shed blood. And I say that realizing that this issue can be polarizing, especially from a gender standpoint, because I will never carry a baby or face the health complications that some women face in pregnancy. And there are complicated um, and sometimes difficult decisions to make, like ectopic pregnancies. This is when the baby forms outside the uterus. And in those cases, the life of the mother and the life of the baby can be at serious risk. And even if you read material from really strong pro-life groups like Focus on the Family, they'll say that ectopic pregnancies don't have an easy kind of bumper sticker way to solve, the que- uh, solve that complication. But uh, in those cases, ectopic pregnancies, roughly depending on the research, is 1% to 2% of the pregnancies in the U.S. each year. And I'm not saying there aren't other complications that go into that, but I think the question remains that with 600,000 plus abortions, have we been swift in the U.S. to shed blood? Whether it's war, whether it's oppression, whether it's abortion, I think the answer is yes. We haven't evolved that much from the readers of Paul's words, from the readers of those Old Covenant Psalms. The next statement I think goes on to further diagnose what it means to be under sin, and it's a little more self-evident. It says, the way of peace they have not known in their paths are ruin and misery. And this goes on to talk about no fear of God before their eyes, directly quoting Psalm 36. He's saying to his readers, with all your religion and with all your morality, with all your codes of how to live up and be a good person, all your law keeping, it's netted you nothing you haven't actually known peace. And I think the same, again, applies to us. Think of all the books that have been written, all the great leaders that have come that have championed ideals of peace and togetherness and unity and just getting some basic human principles down, valuing each other's lives, not stealing, not murdering, not doing things that harm other humans. And in 2021, I think we're still dealing with the same problems that Paul's audience was. Speaking of each other, violence, bloodshed, And with all of our technological advancements too, it's very interesting to think how in Paul's day, if you wanted to read what he wrote, it would be written down, and someone would have to physically transcribe it and write it down, and then that would be one copy that you could then give to one person who probably wasn't literate, but then that would either have to be read aloud by someone who's literate, or another copy would be written for someone else who's literate to read it. It'd be a very tough process to communicate and to get this out to other people. With all our technological advancements right now i'm talking into a microphone all you are hearing me i'm being live streamed there could be millions of people watching this instantly seeing and hearing in real time when i'm communicating with all our technological advancements and all our fancy technology that makes communication so much easier and better the way of peace we still have not known and i think it's all traced back to the statement the original one that was from the psalm There's no fear of God in their eyes. This is Paul's um, transposing of that. The common root of the deeper symptom of Jews and Greeks being under sin. There's no fear of God in their eyes. When they do things, when they think things, when we go about our life, we don't do it always thinking what Jesus said, those very sobering words that one day will give an account for the careless words that we've spoken. There isn't any fear of God often before our eyes. This is the common root, the way to diagnose whether or not we are under the power of sin. There's an interesting statement that's made uh, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. I was just going through that. That's in my kind of daily Bible reading plan. Um, I just finished up Ecclesiastes. And it says at the end of Ecclesiastes, when all has been said and heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. So this kind of gives us a more complete picture. Uh, Paul talks about there's no fear of God in their eyes. I like how Ecclesiastes says it a little more holistically. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And I think it diagnoses the problem for both. For the non-religious reader, the idea that there's no fear of God in their eyes is obvious because we learned in Romans 1 They don't recognize or submit to Him. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they do what ought not to be done. They do what's unnatural. That's kind of the Romans one classic type of sinner. But for the religious, no fear of God I think applies to them as well. The whole duty of man, what it really, what really is, what's it about to be human and to know God, to fear God, to keep His commandments. And Paul's point for the religious has been that if you truly knew God's commandments, you'd know that you couldn't keep them. You know that you couldn't live up to the moral requirements of what's written in the law. So for any religious person reading this, any person who's familiar with God's statutes, God's laws, God's commands, any hint of pride or self-righteousness or kind of pointing the finger like we talked about a few weeks ago, all Paul's saying is that proves that you're no better off than the Gentiles. You're under the power of sin. Again, that proves our hypothesis. The religious, the non-religious, Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. He's saying specifically to his religious readers, you have all this morality, you have all these laws and these things that you think you can follow, but you don't even live up to it yourself. You can't even follow the moral commandments that God directly gave you. And if you do keep up to it in any way and it leads to any sense of pride, it's it's a vicious cycle. Now you're just proving you're no better than the Gentiles because you should know that you can't keep his commandments and now you're being prideful. Jews and Greeks under the power of sin. Morality ultimately won't save us. Now I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek when I say that because I think morality is a good thing. I think moral ideas like stealing is wrong is a good thing. Uh, it It has its place in if we adopt morals that are from God, it's hard to say that we won't have some level of benefit in our life if we work hard, be honest, tell the truth, right? Those are all good things. And it's good that we understand what the ideas of right and wrong ultimately are. But ultimately, what is the point, though? If we fall short of even our own moral standards or the moral standards that God himself gives us, that's what the final part of the passage deals with. Verses 19 and 20. Now we know, starting at verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we have become conscious of our sin. So first and foremost, moral standards, morality, particularly in the case of a lot of the religious readers, the moral law that they had from God, it holds us accountable. It shows us that we can't abide by moral standards, our own or moral standards that we get directly divinely from God himself. We all fall fall short. So that truth then makes the whole world accountable to, liable to God. The religious and the non-religious, the moral and the immoral, the Jew and the Gentile, everyone is accountable to God. Because by moral standards, our own or from God himself, we will not be, and this is a word that will be uh, unpacked in later uh, messages in Romans, none of us will be justified. That's a word we need to hear. None of us will be justified, and we'll get to that in future weeks. And the passage kind of ends on a really sad note. It's like a, not really much of a like, crescendo ending. It says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's a tough note to end on. All Paul is saying is that if you try to to be a good moral person, ultimately all you'll realize is that you can't be good enough. That's the difficult message of this passage. That's the difficult message really of the the, the first real big chunk of Romans, that trying to be good enough will never be good enough. And it's not really an encouraging message. (laughs) I don't see that on any bumper stickers or held up on signs at football games. Through the law comes knowledge of sin just kind of telling us like, moral standards only reveal that you can't be good enough. An old phrase comes to mind. Uh, this is maybe not as popular or true today because I think classrooms have changed, but they used to tell you never to scratch the chalkboard because nails on a chalkboard is like the most cringe-worthy, like it just gets to the bottom of you and makes you like cringe when you hear the sound. Nails on a chalkboard, it's an annoying spine-tingling, it's a hard thing to hear. That kind of sounds like it, but if you grew up in a classroom that had a chalkboard in it, you knew what that sound would like. It would just make you cringe. And thinking about that, I want to kind of expand the analogy a bit. Nails on a chalkboard is certainly an annoying sound, if you, especially if you've heard it for real, on an actual real chalkboard, just how it like, makes you cringe. But imagine for a second that you are locked in a classroom, an old classroom, no food, No water. You're stuck. You've been there. Minutes turn to hours. Hours turn to maybe a day or two. You're getting hungry. It's dark. You're alone. And all that's there is a chalkboard. So you're bored. And you think, well, I guess I'll draw some pictures on this chalkboard, play tic-tac-toe with myself. There's nothing going on here, so might as well entertain myself while I'm stuck in this room. And you draw on the chalkboard. And then you sit back down. And then you hear something. You think, is that nails on a chalkboard? Am I going crazy, or is this just a figment of my imagination? Was there actually someone on the other side of that room, or someone in this room with me? And you're alone. It's been almost a day or two. So you think, well, I guess I'll just ask. I'll I'll shout and see if anybody hears me. And you say, scratch twice if, if you're in here. And you hear two scratches. Someone's on the other side of the chalkboard. Someone's in the room with you. There's someone who can deliver you. We don't get a direct picture of a redeemer or a deliverance figure in this passage. But in our analogy, and really the, the, the kind of light coming at the end of the tunnel in Romans, the person on the other side of the door, the person scratching the chalkboard, showing you you're not alone in the room, that person is Jesus. Jesus. He can free us from the trap of sin. He can free us from the trap of human morality, the locked room of the law. Morality will not save us. It only imprisons us. And Jesus ultimately can free us. Galatians 3.24 says it this way. Before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith should be revealed wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. There's that word again, justified. It's one we'll unpack in future weeks. So while this passage in the first few chapters really seem harsh, it's kind of just like a kind of annoying, like you're not good enough, this is hard, people are sinful, there are different types of ways people are sinful, religious people are sinful, non-religious people are sinful, it just kind of repeats that same message there is a light coming at the end of the tunnel. But it's not to be a better version of yourself. It's not even to have or adopt a better religion. It's a new start for anyone who wants it. Morality won't save us, but Jesus will. We don't need morality. What we need is righteousness and justification. And Jesus has that for us. So as we uh, enter into a time of communion, we're going to remember what it means to know and to worship Jesus. First and foremost, that his body was broken for our sin, that his blood was shed for us, and that the trap that we have, the trap that we set for ourselves by trying to be moral, ultimately, it can be broken, and it was broken on the cross. So for any of us that want that new start, we can recognize and give our lives to Jesus, receive his righteousness receive his justification and free ourselves from the trap of trying to be good enough. So I'm going to I'm going to read our passage one more time. And we're going to pray and then we're going to sing a song to celebrate and we'll take communion. Again, Romans 3 starting at verse 9. What then are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. And no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. this passage and reflect on what we need from you. We need to be justified. We need to be righteous. We need to be made right. Jesus, we thank you that your broken body, that your shed blood doesn't make, it, make us moral, it makes us righteous. It justifies us. Help us to remember and to crave and to know that we were once far off from you, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. There was once enmity between the Father, and us. But for those of us who know and trust Jesus, we've been brought near. God, break down any sense of pride, any sense of being better off because of our religious upbringing or our background, any sense of having uh, a head start on anyone else, and make us all aware that we need to be reconciled to God through the bloodshed of Jesus. Help this uh, time of worship, this time of communion, to humble us, to make us aware of our need, but also to give us hope, God, to give us hope that there's more than us just trying to be better people, where there's hope for us to actually truly receive righteousness, to be made right, to be justified, and to have a life that can be defined by living out of thankfulness and joy and freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. We thank you for this time to worship, this time to read your word. Give us, uh, through the power of the Spirit, power to obey and to live with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.